from the McCourtney Institute for Democracy on the campus of Penn State University. I'm Michael Berkman. I'm Chris Beam. I'm Jenna Spinelli, and welcome to Democracy Works. This week, our guests are Michael Barabe and Jennifer Roof, who are the authors of the forthcoming book, It's Not Free Speech, Race, Democracy, and the Future of Academic Freedom. Michael is a colleague of ours here at Penn State. He's the Edwin Earl Sparks Professor of Literature. And Jennifer is a professor of film at Portland State University. And this book, as the name suggests, really dives headfirst into a lot of issues that have been talked about in recent years on college campuses. But, uh, you know, all of it raises, I think, a, a larger question. A book like this, earlier guests that we've had that have also talked a lot about what's going on on college campuses, many of them from a more conservative direction, I think, about what role universities should play in a democracy if they have any particular role within a democracy. And certainly it's the contention of many in academia today that democracies do have a role to play in a democracy. Uh, Tracy Fitzsimmons, the president of uh, Shenandoah University, wrote after uh, January 6th that universities have a commitment to bettering humanity. The president of Johns Hopkins recently wrote a book where he talks about how universities must, quote, foster democracy. And our guests today say that universities must further democracy. So clearly there's the idea out there that universities have a role to play in a, play in a democracy and uh, universities provide expertise for democratic discussion and debate. Uh, this is something our provost talked about, actually, when he was on the air with us uh, years ago. Uh, universities develop ways to use the expertise within their university for public good. I mean, at a, uh, a land-grant uni university, that's easy to see in terms of our extension programs and things of that nature. But more broadly, the idea that the expertise developed here needs to be applied to public debate and public discussion. But universities also, I think, increasingly recognize the role that they need to play in creating or helping to create good democratic citizens. The job of the university is to help citizens distinguish between good arguments and bad, bad arguments, arguments, between yeah. evidence that is, um, you know, responsible, legitimate, um, and persuasive, and evidence that is, you know, none of those things, right? Right, because free speech says you can say whatever you want. Right. You know, I mean, within me, limits, but free speech says you can say whatever you want. Right. Free speech does not mean that you have um, the right to say whatever you want and to keep your job or to keep your source of income. And there, the, the free speech that you have gives the other person the right to condemn what you're saying and to challenge what you're saying. But I do think that part of the problem here is that free speech has become this talisman mm -hmm. that you can just wave whenever you want and it gets you, um, it, it's like, oh, well, then it's free speech. It's okay. And their argument is that it's something very different from that, that, that the idea of academic freedom is very different and, and really more restrictive than that. No, I, I, I mean, think that what conforming. they're arguing is that your work needs to be able to pass muster by the 
from the uh, evaluations of your peers. I mean, that's built into universities all the time. Everything about how people are promoted and tenured, everything about how people are hired, uh, everything about how you get published is based upon the idea that your work is passing muster of other experts in the field. And, and this is different from the idea in free speech, which you can just say whatever you want. And that's free speech idea is often brought into universities. The idea people should be able to say whatever they want, and it should be protected by some notion of free speech, but that doesn't really exist within the university. Right. And that's, I think that's a good place to go to the interview. I think we've, we've laid out what role universities can and should have in a democracy and where that butts up against some other misconceptions about things like free speech and where universities fit into that. And that, as we've said, is the entire subject of Michael and Jennifer's book. And we dive into a lot more detail in our conversation. So let's go now to the interview. Michael Barabay and Jennifer Ruth, welcome to Democracy Works. Thank you so much for joining us today. Thanks for having us. So your new book, It's Not Free Speech, touches on so many issues that are important to democracy today, particularly when we think about a university's role in democracy. And central to the book is the, the notion of academic freedom. Uh, so Michael, let's let's start with you, if, if you don't mind, uh, tell us what academic freedom is. Oh, is that all? <laughs> um, actually, this is, I, I, Jennifer can jump in as well because it was her idea to bring in Robert Post's argument about democratic legitimation. But basically, academic freedom uh, has three, in the United States, has three components. Freedom of research, which almost no one questions. Occasionally, there are corporate restraints on research, but very rarely do you find someone actually trying to uh, block a book or something. Freedom in teaching, which does come under fire uh, if, it's, if it's about controversial matters. And then the third one, which is the trickiest and takes up most of our book, extramural speech. That would be the speech that professors engage in as citizens. So I certainly gave up none of my First Amendment rights when I took a position at Penn State or the University of Illinois. Jennifer did the same at, at Portland State. But it gets very tricky when we start uh, speaking in public about areas of our expertise. Then we're held to a higher standard. So the paradox there that we spend some time on, almost an entire chapter, is that we're actually on safer ground if we mouth off on Twitter about stuff we know nothing about like <clears throat> uh, certain refereeing calls in the Super Bowl, as opposed to things we're actually um, expert in, because there the standard is higher for us, because it presumably has, has bearing on our teaching and research. But those are the three components. They are, you know, they give faculty considerable auto intellectual autonomy in teaching and research, again, leaving aside extramural speech for a moment. And we think, uh, we're not alone, this is one of the cornerstones of a free society, to make sure that the people who are doing the teaching and researching are not beholden to church or state or party. Um, and the trade-off, and this is uh, where we get into Jennifer's use of Robert Post's argument, is that ultimately this is a bargain that will serve democracy in some way, that the advance of knowledge unfettered by external constraints will serve something we call the common good, whatever that might be. Mm -hmm. 
Yeah, and and let's let's pick up on that, uh, Jennifer. Can you talk more about this this argument from Robert Post about democratic legitimation and, and democratic competence? Yeah, I think in his book, it's a 2012 book, um, Democracy, Expertise, Academic Freedom, A First Amendment Jurisprudence for the Modern State. He's a, a legal scholar at Yale. He is really, he, he said in an interview that he was interested in working out this, this sort of jurisprudence because of the way in which expert knowledge seemed to be being debased in the public sphere to mere opinion. And mere opinion was seeming to have equal weight with expert knowledge. And he wanted to try to carve out a space where academic freedom and free speech are not conflated. And that, ha that space has been carved out over the years through a kind of common law built by a, the American Association of University Professors through reports, documents, um, decisions by Committee A on academic freedom and tenure, um, on which I serve. Um, but judicially, it's been kind of what Post calls a Sargasso Sea of, of different kinds of feelings in search of a coherent philosophy. Um, and of course, that confusion is reflected in the, in the public sphere. Mm -hmm. The conflation of academic freedom and free speech not just with the public, but even among academics, is huge. And it's a problem when you want to carve out a space for expert knowledge that can be uh, kept kind of inviolate from political interference or commercial interference. So he's, that's what he's looking to do. And he creates two, he, he sort of uh, coins two phrases to develop his argument. One is democratic legitimation, for which he feels the First Amendment is critical because it's about the equality of persons to participate in the democratic process to some extent. And then, but the fact that democratic competence, a certain amount of competence around facts and knowledge are required to facilitate democratic self-governance. If we don't have that, um, we don't know how to differentiate between good ideas and bad ideas. And that's the space where universities come in. And if we can protect them from uh, outside influence, we can protect this sphere in which good ideas and bad ideas don't get equal time. It's not actually, as one court you know, decision quoted one of the justices, it's not a marketplace of ideas in the university. You, it's actually our whole job is partly to vet and make judgments and build on knowledge based on not continuing to revivify debunked knowledge. So that's where he's coming from. And I think he does a really nice job of creating some legal groundworks. Yeah. And I, and I know you, you talk about the, the kind of broader need for reform, uh, you know, among the um, American Association of, of University Professors, uh, some of which, you know, their, their, their materials or their frameworks on these issues haven't been updated in, in decades, if not longer. But I, I want to come back to this conflation of academic freedom and free speech. Can you talk a little bit more about where that comes from and and why perhaps it does seem to be so prevalent in our discourse today. Well, the conflation, I, I could go to, uh, Jenna, you alluded to some AAP documents that haven't been updated, and we uh, took the uh, sharp knives out to one of them from 1994, <clears throat> a statement that often gets quoted, <clears throat> and it's about speech codes. And in the course of uh, that statement, the AAP completely confuses the difference between uh, a, a visiting speaker coming to campus, which is a lot, you know, a lot of controversies are about that, especially if they um, have some racist or allegedly racist tinge to them, and then student speech and professorial speech. All these things are different things. 
and yet um, we quoted that, uh, I actually wanted to call it up, a really strikingly misguided passage, and it reads, an institution of higher learning fails to fulfill its mission if it asserts the power to proscribe ideas. And racial or ethnic slurs, sexist epithets, or homophobic insults almost always express ideas, however repugnant. Indeed, by proscribing any ideas, a university sets an example that profoundly deserves its academic mission. Any ideas, not just the racist, sexist, homophobic stuff, but the fact now that uh, we are, are disclosing this to your listeners that the moon is in fact made of blue cheese, that in fact Ptolemy was right, and that phrenology has much to teach us. We argue, again, partly following posts, but then a lot of this is just us, that in fact academic freedom sets a much higher standard. Um, that in fact it does involve a jury of your disciplinary and, and <clears throat> academic peers. The jury is not always right. Sometimes you know uh, ideas move from the margin to the center over the course of time. History of science is largely about that. Um, but I think where these this conflation really started happening, I mean I think that that uh, statement from the AUP carbon dates it. That's 1994. This started with the PC scares of the early 90s mm -hmm. and the <clears throat> claim that you know, free speech was imperiled on campus. And this quickly morphed into uh, a conflation of academic freedom and free speech. So that you got professors claiming academic freedom for things that was never intended to cover. And you got uh, a really um, blanket invocation of that marketplace of ideas. That the university has to be open to all ideas. Just let them fight it out. And I think we argue, we have a number of arguments about that, but one of them is, first of all, in principle, that is wrong, right? Um, this is why that tension between democratic competence and democratic legitimation is so strong. If, in fact, 70% of the people of Pennsylvania believe in astrology, that doesn't mean there should be an astrology department at Penn State, right? We don't conduct these things by plebiscite, and yet, at the same time, we are answerable to the public in a way because we believe academic freedom ultimately serves democracy in another sense, without just turning things over to popular vote. Uh, so yeah, I think um, and I think some of this has been, that's one of our arguments. The other, of course, is that it's been harder and harder to maintain any kind of faith in the marketplace of ideas, uh, in, given the advent of Facebook and Trump and you know, uh, organize this information campaigns that in, in a pandemic are literally lethal, but even before that, that, that really severely eroded the uh, standard liberal belief to which I subscribed until a couple of years ago that the best antidote to hate speech is more speech or that sunlight is the best disinfectant. Mm -hmm. Turns out that shining sunlight on Nazis helps them grow, right? And so we say in the book, maybe bleach is a better disinfectant. We've been talking on the show recently about how this libertarian notion has impacted our media environments, uh, how it's impacted public K-12 education. There's been sort of this assault um, on these these institutions and the, the the broader sense of the common good that that they put forward, all sort of framed in this market place of of ideas. And I think that that is the point that you make that we're seeing perhaps something similar happen or, or have seen something similar happen with within higher education, again, using this this notion of, of academic freedom. Jennifer. Yeah. yeah, could I say something to the first, the role of libertarian thinking and how it has encroached into the acad academia. 
one thing that we we say we do say that you know it's been 80 years since the the definitive 1940 statement on academic freedom and tenure by AUP that you know 180 educational organizations signed on to and we said we that you know it needs to be updated in part in response to the fact that social media the you know erosion of tenure all of these things um, but there is a way in which we need to go back to the 1915 declaration because that's the place where the emphasis really is on the academic freedom is a collective right, not an individual liberty or an individual right. It's the profession that decides. Um, and so that's a really that's a piece that's missing in part because of the rise of the marketplace of ideas and the sort of libertarian campaigns to make everything about individual rights um, and anti-regulation. And one of the things that when you bring up the assault on public education, which you know, the, there's a Penn report that just came out that shows the degree to which uh, I think it's a, a lot of people are under the illusion that this mostly just affects K through 12. It also affects higher education. What's really interesting, there's a really good book that came out in November called Free Speech and Coke Money, um, Manufacturing a Campus Culture War by Isaac Kamala and um, Ralph Wilson. And they really walk you through the libertarian, the way that the libertarian campaign, the Coke money, beginning with you know, trying to defend the tobacco industry and say that there's a both sides to tobacco. When the news reports talk about the damage to, to your health, they should also talk about talk to consumers and the enjoyments and pleasures to, you know, making a big case about ambulance chasing lawyers, like all of the anti-regulation work that the libertarians have done. And the way they, uh, Wilson and Kamala do a really good job of showing how that has actually also happened for campuses and to academia. They've also, you know, you know, put their sights on academia and it's really had an effect on how the public views universities. And one of the things, one of the things that I think they don't talk about this in their book, but I'm really struck by the what you might ironically call the interest convergence between libertarianism and authoritarianism and the degree to which you there's there's a Venn diagram of politicians that started off saying we got to pass legislation to protect racist speech allegedly you know, ra- kind of, you know things speech emboldened by a kind of Trump figure that sort of brought out the sense of hey, white nationalism, all of this kind of stuff. We got to protect, we got to pass legislation to protect that in universities to within six months passing legislation banning speech. One of the things, one of the the, the solutions that I, I hear put forward, um, we, we've talked about it on this show when we had Jonathan Rausch on to talk about his book, The Constitution of Knowledge. I know groups like the, the, the Heterodox Academy, um, they all sort of advocate for what they describe as viewpoint diversity. It's a, it's a Trojan horse, basically, <clears throat> because it assumes, first of all, that viewpoint diversity is in its, of itself a, a good. And it depends on what kind of field we're talking about. Again, you know, I, and I brought up Ptolemy, not that uh, blue cheese is silly. Everyone knows the moon is made of green cheese. But Ptolemaic understandings of the universe worked for so long because they weren't terribly off. We, we didn't have the instruments to see, you know, okay, no, Mars isn't exactly where it should be. And so for that matter, there are still outliers out there who refuse to accept the, the evidence of the Big Bang, right? But in some fields, I'm starting with the sciences, but I think this holds for a lot of the social sciences as well, less so the arts and humanities where things are much more loosey-goosey, but there are whole fields in which viewpoint diversity is a crock, where in fact, this is settled. I mentioned phrenology. For, I, one of the things I hope gets established by our book is how incredibly ubiquitous eugenics was 100 years ago. We had a little debate over an adjective with the editor of The New Republic. about. I had said that white supremacism has a long and distinguished history in the academy. 
And the word distinguished sort of jumps out, right? But what I meant was it didn't. It wasn't confined to Southeast Alabama State or Bob Jones University. It was ubiquitous, and, and the Dunning School was concocted. You know, the the, the uh, uh, basically anti-Reconstruction, pro-revanchist academic wing of the Ku Klux Klan was was all concocted at Columbia. So, and phrenology again, it's been discredited, but. You can go back 100, 120 years and find that it was just a subset of much wider beliefs that almost everyone shared. Right? We don't want that viewpoint diversity back. Thank you very much. One of the things we are trying to do in this book is say, look, every theory that there is some innate or cultural difference among humans that allows us to rank them by race, this now belongs on the ash heap of history and the zombie belief must finally die. The other thing that, that we hear that this um, kind of lack of, you know, people who feel that their speech is, is being restricted in, in some way. I know you mentioned the, the Harper's letter in, in, your, in your book. I, I took this sense from that. But there's this chilling effect, right, of where if you don't have whatever the, the one true opinion is, is deemed to be, then you, you're too afraid to say anything or bring up controversial topics in, in the classroom, I'm just wondering, you know, how how real is this chilling effect? How much fear is there about saying the wrong thing or getting canceled or everything that is purported to to come along with that? Yeah, I, I pretty much agree with the the position that it's not cancel culture, it's culture. There's always been a pull back and forth and a tug of war, an attempt to try, try to be censorious with one with positions that you don't agree with. And the, the difference is that we may be in a, a period of more accelerated change of social norms and uh, reckonings, you know, George Floyd's mur murder, Me Too, these kind of reckonings with our society. Trump really, you know, created a new sense of urgency around inclusiveness and, you know, accepting that we're a multiracial democracy and also understanding that some people don't want to share this country with others. So I think there's an accelerated social norms that are creating a new sense of self-consciousness among faculty, but that's not a bad thing. I'm at, I'm at Portland State. Um, we have a pretty, we have a strong contingent of progressive students. When they was introduced as a pronoun for a singular pronoun, um, I, I, I stumbled for a while. I had no problem adopting it, but I stumbled for a while. My students were incredibly forgiving. For every one incident that gets totally blown out of portion, a thousand moments happen across campuses where students don't decide to become mob, you know, outrage mobs. I do have a more than a sliver of sympathy with that kind of critique that a person can lose their career over a, a, over a tweet. Right? The social media have made things so volatile. Uh, and But if you go by some subjective feelings of whether people are afraid to say X, Y, or Z, you're not going to get any uh, reliable data at all. Sometimes uh, people have they're, – they're reluctant to say, what do you mean? I can't just be transphobic now? Is the sell-by date now expired? I, I, no one told me. So it is true in those uh, catalogs of the canceled that there were some injustices done and things were taken completely out of context. That's why I thought it was really important for us to start the book with a chapter about what is context? What, where did the very term cancel culture come from? What happens when you truncate the context of an utterance and what happens when you, what con constitutes, and, it's, and this is not just a, a dry exercise in literary theory, 
know, sometimes people's careers depend on this, right? And we've got a situation here. I think uh, this goes also to what we would suggest as a remedy for faculty who are accused of things. We have a situation here where a guy can be removed from his class at, at USC for saying a Chinese word that sounds like the N-bomb. And meanwhile, we have real live breathing white supremacists running around with complete impunity. It, it, it's a kind of crazy system and it's completely ad hoc. And sometimes, like I say, manifest injustices are done. That said, you're going to have to drug me pretty hard to tell me that Joe Rogan and Dave Chappelle are canceled, right? In fact, the whole Joe Rogan thing demonstrates to me that no one even understands what free speech is anymore, let alone academic freedom. You know, if musicians pulling their stuff off Spotify is an infringement on Joe Rogan's free speech, uh, no, the, the concept is pretty much lost all, all meaning altogether. Hey everyone, it's Jenna. We're going to take a brief break from the interview to start a series that we'll be rolling out here over the next couple of weeks on Democracy Works. We are going to be uh, highlighting our partner shows in the Democracy Group Podcast Network. I really enjoy all of the shows in our network, and I'm so excited to be able to tell you about them uh, over the next couple of weeks. First up is Democracy in Danger, which is a production of the Deliberative Media Lab at the University of Virginia. The show explores how trends like voter suppression, disinformation, and nativist ideology are impacting democracy in the U.S. and around the world. Previous guests include voting rights scholar Carol Anderson, UVA President Jim Ryan, and the ACLU's Dale Ho. You can find Democracy in Danger wherever you listen to podcasts. And now back to the interview. So thinking about, um, you know, the, the speed with which these things, these instant, these incidents are, are occurring and, and being adjudicated thanks to, to social media and just the, the broader nature of, of our media environment in general today, do faculty committees or organizations like the AAUP, which are notoriously slow moving, or at least that's the that's the stereotype of them anyway, do they have the, the capacity to act as quickly as seems to be needed to to really, you know, stay on top of things for, for lack of a better term, or you know, respond to things as as they're happening? That's a really good question. And I do think I, I, I don't fault you for saying AUP is notoriously slow moving. Um, I think the fact that we've introduced this critique of the 1994 statement, I'm on committee A, but it's still, I, I don't have direct power over anything. Um, it would still probably take years to revise that statement. I think we really, I think that's why ultimately, even though we want AUP to rethink some of its positions and update some of its positions, we really are calling on faculty. Um, and it's not like we're all very aware of the disinclination to be to invest too much of our time in governance issues and service when we want to be doing other things. Um, but we need it. And I mean, and there is hope. So we need fa academic freedom committees that have a certain amount of, that have bylaws that allow for the creation of a ad hoc committee that has people in the discipline of the person who's come under the spotlight in some way, a particular incident, um, you know, that can, that can move pretty quickly. It's going to have to, and we do have some hope that that's possible. And I'm going to point to the Senate resolution campaigns that are passing across the country but that are not getting nearly as much attention as they deserve. The University of Texas at Austin yesterday passed a resolution 
rejecting political interference and the education of critical race theory. This is Texas. Um, 45 yes, five no, three abstention. They're, they're drawing a line in the sand that this we are the ones who adjudicate what happens in the classroom, not Greg Abbott or whoever is the... Um, and so, and this is, there's over 15 schools now that have adapted a template and passed this resolution, and it's it's just gaining momentum. Including Penn State. Including Penn State, including Portland State. So yeah, I think I think it needs to be local too. I think, you know, these things are going to show up in, in, in the media. You know, Connor, Connor Friedersdorf is an Atlantic writer um, doing the free speech wars. And he every little moment at Oberlin, every little moment anywhere, he's going he's gonna to blow up, right? These faculty committees need to be in, in, indifferent to that. So parsing it in the, in the social media, parsing it in, the, in uh, journals and magazines, that's one thing. Faculty need to be allowed to parse it, yeah. Not just for a moment. I know you may have another question, but I just want to go back over um, Jennifer's uh, remarks about the AAUP because uh, that perception that moves slowly is not wrong. When the AAUP does an investigation, first of all, they usually have to be bodies. They have to actually be fired, tenured professors and conducted two investigations. We concluded our work in a couple of months, but you still have to pour through thousands and thousands of pages of emails, policy documents, what have you. And that's one of the reasons I think the Foundation for Individual Rights in Education sometimes cleans the AAUP's clock. They respond very, very quickly. They can have like people parachuting down to a campus, you know, from these special fire helicopters. Uh, and they're, you know, right? They have a good legal arm. They're, they're very savvy about this sort of thing. But sometimes um, that's not a virtue. And when you talk about faculty committees, you know, inevitably being uh, deliberative. And meanwhile, some guy at the Atlantic is complaining that the students don't think the bond me Oberlin is really bond me. And the students, years later, we found out not only were the students entirely right, but the entire uh, uh, narrative was garbled from the outset and then went viral thanks to Friedersdorf. And we saw the same thing 30 years ago with PC. A lot of the incidents turned out on, on closer examination to be complete nonsense. One last thing um, for our listeners who are not part of, of higher education, but still see the you know whether it's Connor Friedersdorf or, or others who are on this sort of cancel culture beat, so to speak, uh, and are just seeing these things out there. How how might you recommend that they sort of parse them or? Um, you know, might you offer some some advice for for how to think about these these stories as they will no doubt continue to come up given the sort of popularity or you know financial viability that they seem to bring. I'm going to let Michael take that after I say one thing. Follow the money. Koch Foundation is part of has helped fund the free speech series of Atlantic Magazine that Connor, in which Connor Friedersdorf is writing. Um, so follow the money, see whose interest this is in. Think about the larger campaign of libertarian and conservative groups that to try and deflect against any kind of regulation. Um, and then think about the difference between academic freedom and free speech and try and understand that, that we need democratic competence in order to have, in a post-truth, post-facts world, we need to rely on some kind of authoritative knowledge. And that's not going to, that, that knowledge isn't going to be uh, figured out through social media. 
Picking up on that, um, I would underscore something that Tressie McMillan Cottom uh, wrote in the New York Times last month, that there are real social costs to the idea that everyone's an expert now, right? And I say this also, I mean, <clears throat> uh, there's a point in the introduction, I think this one's on me, where I said, you know, we, we once believed in the ideal of not just liberals, but Jürgen Habermas, the, 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 the public sphere is an open place where people can debate things and debate the good life and the good society. And, you know, in the early days of the Internet, and I had a blog, I thought, this is great. You know, this is as democratizing, this is Gutenberg 2.0, right? This is bringing all kinds of knowledge to, into the hands of ordinary citizens. We no longer have the gatekeepers we have in media, people sometimes who would outlive their sinecures. And this is the, like the blog revolution. Of, and it turns out that a lot of that really went sour. And that asking people to be experts, you now have a whole, oh, literally legions, millions of people who have, quote unquote, done their own research on COVID and look where that has gotten us. So my watchword for your listeners would be, watch out for the clickbait. It's so tempting. But the outrage machine uh, is every bit as tempting to the left as to the right. Uh, it's, it's, it's a sort of... Um, equal opportunity uh, temptation. And I've had my moments of, of, of getting into it as well, of thinking, well, that's prima facie, outrageous. And having to remind myself, you're going to have to give this at least 48 hours to figure out what in the world is going on here first, and maybe another 48 days to figure out whether it's true or not. And I know that that's you know, in, in, a, in a culture where you know judgment is instantaneous, you know, I'm, I'm standing, it was standing athwart, uh, like, like conservatives, standing athwart history yelling, stop. But you know, one of the things we point out is that the original uh, canceled hashtag, canceled Colbert, was not actually about canceling Colbert, right? It was a much more nuanced critique that you could get only by actually talking to the person on some medium other than Twitter. And I honestly did not know that until I did a deep dive into it. I originally thought canceled Colbert was this manufactured social outrage, social media outrage thing. And it turns out it was actually part of a fairly measured critique of... Um, in fact, there's almost no cost to white comedians for mocking the kind of thing that Colbert mocked. He was mocking the owner of the Washington Redskins, and he was doing it in his Bill O'Reilly uh, persona. But as a matter of fact, uh, it's a different thing if a white guy tells that joke, right? So slow down a bit. Not everything uh, deserves your like or your retweet in the next 15 seconds. And a lot of these things that come out of academic controversies you know, sometimes take some time to parse. Well, I think that is a wonderful note to end on. Uh, thank you both for this book. As I said, we did not even, we, we, we barely scratched the surface of all the things you cover. I, I highly recommend uh, listeners pick it up and uh, we will link to it in the show notes. But uh, Jennifer and Michael, thank you so much for joining us today. Thank you for having us. Thank you so much. So, Michael, what I find interesting about the book and that you know, comes up in the interview as well is this argument that th this is a statement about the, the, the role and importance of academic freedom right now. And they talk about how things have changed in, in, the, in the culture and in higher, uh, higher education over like the past 20, 25 years. And they're saying, look, right now, the role and the, the uh, objectives of higher education are distinctively under threat. And so this is why we need a statement about what the academy is for 
right now. Um, it's not able to do its its job. And because of that, that's one of the reasons why um, our public argument, our public debate is so compromised, is so bad. And so um, they are arguing that in this world in which Greg Abbott is saying what uh, should go on at the University of Texas, and legislatures all over the nation are saying what um, is okay in terms of teaching around the subject of race, all of that is um, a threat to the role of, of higher education in a democracy. And so it needs to be confronted head on. So all of this is going on. They're taking on, they're taking on quite a bit. Uh, and they're, you know, from, keep in mind, these are two authors that are deeply entrenched in how universities govern themselves. And they both come from a position, I think it's fair to say, that they believe in strong faculty governance of universities. And so they're starting from how can universities play a role given all of these changes and how can the faculty effectively play a role in, in all of these changes that are going on? There is this, um, there is a, a, a clear focus on this issues, uh, on these questions associated with white supremacy and how it is that they call them these zombie ideas that just will not stay dead, even though they have no, uh, they've been completely debunked, both, you know, in, in whatever argument or whenever discipline you're talking about. They say that if, if this is, if, if we allow these arguments to uh, continue, to, to, continue to claim some kind of, well, we're just, it's just open inquiry. We're just asking questions. If we do that, then what we're doing is undermining the factual ground of equality on which a democracy has to rest. And so it's not simply a matter of partisan politics. It is, if, if, um, if higher education allows these questions to be open, to continue to be open when they shouldn't be, right? We don't still question whether or not the earth revolves around the sun. <laughs> you know, we don't, those are not, those are closed questions. And if we act as if this question is different from that and is an open question that deserves debate and argument, then what we're doing is not only undermining science and these disciplines um, within the academy, but we're also undermining the the ground on which a democracy has to uh, achieve in order to sustain itself, uh, namely of, of, of universal equality. I think many coming from this from a more conservative direction would argue that really what we're seeing in universities is the imposition of some kind of new orthodoxy. Right. Yeah. Right. No, I think that's right. And, and I think it, I mean, I'm, you know, the, the heterodox Academy, which is Jonathan Haidt's, um, um, object, uh, organization argues, you know, that's the opposite of, of orthodoxy. Right. And, and there is a, an argument that, you know, he, it's on the other end of the spectrum, right? But what um, Barabay and um, Ruth are arguing is that neutrality 
is um, undermines academic freedom. It is not the standard and it should not be the standard, right? But what Haidt is saying is that orthodoxy should not be the standard. It should not set the terms for academic freedom. And, and I would want to argue that both of those are correct. And that naturally, when you're looking at one side or the other of the spectrum, you're less able to um, focus on the other. I think um, their book does bring out these these examples, right, of, of people who were just, um, you know, unjustly pilloried for something that that really is um is 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 perfectly legitimate or at least understandable discourse right and i do think that that jonathan Haidt and and other i mean there are there's our distinctions there right there are people who are eager to pounce on any example of this kind of you know let's call it leftist or- orthodoxy and 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 blow it up and i think that's probably true but i also think that it's also that um the people in uh the heterodox academy have a point and and so and i do think that there are there are distinctions to be made between you know science and social science and the humanities in terms of what is a, a genuinely open question yeah i mean i <laughs> yeah i i guess i don't i don't fully get what the orthodoxy here is i mean if i guess the orthodoxy is anti-racism right i mean i think that's probably right and but it's also but it's also a matter of what when at what point does a a topic bleed into anti-racism and when is it a, where is it an objective question and i think there are arguments about how that is um how that line is drawn but you know let's face it the 2020 election in particular has created a very difficult environment for having discussions across absolutely partisan lines in and out of academia yes in, in and out of academia right and that students like everybody else are increasingly caught up in sort of their information silos and professors too and right and we don't right and we don't want to perpetuate that in our classrooms but i guess the question is by insisting on anti-racism are we perpetuating that I think that I think that's a um, a a good question to ask, and I yeah. think the answer is if we allow uh, racist comments to be presented without challenge or without you know as if they're genuinely open questions, I think yes, we are undermining democracy. So, for example, and, and they do talk about Jonathan Haidt quite a bit and the heterodox society. But, you know, part of one of the objectives of the heterodox society is just that conservative professors be hired right. along with more liberal ones. I don't I don't think our guests today would disagree with that at all. But I would all I, I would just argue that that the the job of the academy is to train students how to argue. And if arguments are cut off. Some arguments should be cut off, but if all arguments are cut off and saying this is illegitimate, then you're not helping students learn how to argue. Okay. I accept that. Mm -hmm. Anyway. All right. Um, Obviously, a really challenging book 
really interesting book. It's it's really really well written. Oh, it's fun um, to it, read, isn't it? It's it's fun to read, and and that is not something you say very often about a book about ac- academic. What I really liked about this book is it takes many examples that have been in the news, and it talks about them in thoughtful, interesting ways. Sometimes in ways that you might not have thought of. Yeah, and I re- I really like the fact that they are just um, insisting that. Part of the issue here is that academicians accept the responsibilities that they have. They can't just like palm this off on uh, free speech. Mm -hmm. Anyway, all right. So um, thanks, Jenna, for a terrific interview. Um, I'm Chris Beam. I'm Michael Berkman. Thanks for listening. Democracy Works is a collaboration between the McCourtney Institute for Democracy at Penn State and WPSU, Central Pennsylvania's NPR station. Our editors are Mickey Klein, Chris Kugler, and Mark Stitzer. Editorial review by Emily Reddy. And additional production support from Andy Grant and Chris Allen. If you enjoyed what you heard today, leave us a rating or review in Apple Podcasts, Spotify, or wherever you're listening right now. It will help new people find the show. Find more great podcasts about democracy and civic engagement in the Democracy Group Podcast Network at democracygroup.org. Thanks for listening, and we'll see you next week.